0: The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 20 Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me, your host, Conor Hanrity. In the last episode, we saw Macbeth starting to crack up, horrified at the spiritual consequences of having killed Duncan. He's worried that he can no longer pray, and that he'll never sleep again. Lady Macbeth is eagerly trying to get him to stay focused, She's just heard his panicked description of the voice crying to all the house that Macbeth hath murdered sleep, and Macbeth shall sleep no more. Right now, Shakespeare is sowing the seeds of a very ironic coup later in the play, wherein, very famously, it is Lady Macbeth's sleep that will be troubled. But for now, she's the practical one, eminently so. Her next speech attempts to get through to her husband, and to help him snap out of his horror. Who was it that thus cried? Why, worthy Thane, you do unbend your noble strength to think so brain-sickly of things. Go, get some water, and wash this filthy witness from your hand. Uh, Why did you bring these daggers from the place? They must lie there." Go, carry them, and smear the sleepy grooms with blood. Again, her energy seems to be entirely focused on the here and now. She wants to know, specifically, who might have shouted out such gloomy proclamations about sleeping no more? Who was it that thus cried? Macbeth doesn't seem to have an answer, and so she continues, telling him that relaxing into a state like this will leave him weak. The feeling was that strength and readiness were like muscles that had to be kept taut. Earlier on, Macbeth told us that he would bend up each corporal agent in readiness for the feat of killing the king. Now his wife is worrying that thinking so dismally will unbend his strength and compromise him. Thinking like this is not healthy. She calls it a sickness of the brain. Why, worthy Thane, you do unbend your noble strength to think so brain-sickly of things. Now is not the time for this. She knows what has to be done, and tells him very practically that he will need to go and wash his hands with water. He needs to remove the filthy witness, the blood on his hands, which is very damning evidence. And as she's saying this, she finally sees that Macbeth has brought the murder weapons with him from the chamber. Go get some water and wash this filthy business from your hand. Why did you bring these daggers from the place? This was not the plan. He was supposed to leave the daggers on the scene so that they could incriminate Duncan's bodyguards. Lady Macbeth is all business and suggests that Macbeth go back to the crime scene and put the daggers back. They need to stay there. Go back, she says, and while you're at it, smear the drug-addled guards with blood to make them look properly guilty. They must lie there. Go, carry them, and smear the sleepy grooms with blood. There's hardly any poetic language going on here. There's no fantasy, no imagination or imagery. She's all business. Macbeth completes her final line of verse, insisting that I'll go no more. I am afraid to think what I have done, look on it again, I dare not. None of this is terribly difficult language here. He's flatly refusing to go back. He can barely bring himself to think about the scene, but he absolutely will not look on it. And again, we have an echo here of Lady Macbeth saying that she would have committed the crime herself, except that he looked a little bit too much like her father. Again we have this contrast between Macbeth being all in his head and Lady Macbeth being much more present and focused. She snaps at him now. Infirm of purpose. Give me the daggers. The sleeping and the dead are but as pictures. Tis the eye of childhood that fears a painted devil. If he do bleed, I'll gild the faces of the grooms withal, for it must seem their guilt.' Infirm of purpose is a withering put-down, after all her encouragement earlier in the play. Screw your courage to the sticking place, she said. When you dares to do it, then you were a man. And now he's cowering here while she has to clean up. As a very tangential side note, all of the Roman generals in the French Asterix comic strips were given very funny names in fake Latin, especially in the English translations. And my favourite of all of them was infirm of purpose from Asterix and the big fight. Meanwhile, Lady Macbeth takes the daggers. She will return them to the crime scene herself. She's fed up now with Macbeth's worrying. She points out that the sleeping and the dead are but as pictures, perhaps because they are motionless. It's nothing to be afraid of, because they will stay still. Her next lines are more complicated. She insists that only children are afraid of painted devils, a follow-on from her comment that the sleeping and the dead are but as pictures. Basically, she's telling him that he shouldn't be scared and that he's being a baby. And I'll put a little bit in the show notes about the idea of painted devils and where that might have come from. Give me the daggers, she says. The sleeping and the dead are but as pictures. Tis the eye of childhood that fears a painted devil. The remainder of her little speech refers to a very weird belief, of which I had not heard before. It was called cruentation, and this was a medieval method of proving the guilt of a murderer. Apparently it was held true that the corpse of a murder victim would bleed afresh in the presence of the murderer, and so the corpse would be presented as evidence in a murder trial, and if it bled anew, the murderer could be declared guilty. Here Lady M is saying that if Duncan's body bleeds still, she will use some of his blood to mark the faces of the sleeping grooms she drugged. They really need for it to look like these guys killed the king. She says, If he do bleed, I'll gild the faces of the grooms withal, for it must seem their guilt. She exits off to do this gruesome job, and Macbeth is left alone. We now all hear a knocking from off stage this is another of the play's most famous effects. Increasingly paranoid, Macbeth has no idea where it's coming from. He wonders. Whence is that knocking? How is't with me when every noise appalls me? What hands are here? Ha! They pluck out mine eyes. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No. No. This my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. This is a terrifically poetic set of images. He wonders where the knocking is coming from, and then wonders at the effect that this has on him. It's probably just someone somewhere knocking on a door, but he's self-aware enough to recognise that he's not doing very well. He has to wonder what's with him, that every noise... And we've already had owls and crickets and snores and voices crying out in the night, is making him worse. He says that every noise appalls him. We understand this word to mean horrify or frighten, but the origin of the word is for something to make the listener turn white or pale and have a pall about them. Whence is that knocking? How is it with me when every noise appalls me? Now that he's no longer holding the daggers, he gets a look at his hands. It's not the first time he's had blood on them, goodness knows, but now he's horrified by them. In the previous episode, he was calling them hangman's hands. Now they don't seem like they're his at all. He's so horrified, he fantasises about them plucking out his eyes. That way he would no longer have to look at them. Lady Macbeth already told her husband to go and get some water. In his expansive horror, he now pictures entire seascapes. Will Neptune's great ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? The consequences for him are this big. They're heaven and hell. They're the entire ocean. This crime is so awful that the blood on his hands, rather than being washed away by the sea, will in fact turn the oceans red. Shakespeare relishes the extravagance of Macbeth's almost self-indulgent horror at the scale of his crime. These lines all have echoes of Seneca, again, of bloody hands that cannot be cleaned, of eyes plucked out in the aftermath of an appalling crime, and there's also another echo of Shakespeare's own Lucrece. Shakespeare himself was the first to use the word incarnadine as a verb, to make something blood-red. Poor Macbeth is adrift in the magnitude of his guilt. What hands are here? Ha, they pluck out mine eyes. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. Now Lady Macbeth comes back, and the contrast between them continues to sharpen. She says, my hands are of your colour, but I shame to wear a heart so white. Now they both have hands stained with blood. Her hands are the same colour as his. But she plays around with this language and again rebukes him because his heart is white, the colour of fear and surrender. Just as Macbeth said he was appalled, now Lady Macbeth is confirming that he's turned white. In the middle of her line, we hear some more knocking. In even further contrast with her husband, she has a very specific response. I hear a knocking at the south entry. Retire we to our chamber. A little water clears us of this deed. How easy is it then? Your constancy hath left you unattended. Where Macbeth has been startled by the noise and hasn't known where it's from, Lady Macbeth immediately knows what it is, a knocking, and where it is at the south entry. So, she says, they should retire to their chamber. Again, while Macbeth fantasised that no ocean on earth could wash the blood from his hands, Lady Macbeth insists that just a little water will wash away their guilt. Easy as that. But Macbeth's constancy, his firmness of purpose, has left him, and left him unattended. He's vulnerable if he stays in this wretched, hapless state. We hear yet more knocking, and Lady Macbeth responds to it. Hark, more knocking. Get on your nightgown, lest occasion call us and show us to be watchers. Be not lost so poorly in your thoughts. This is the rest of the plan. They need to wash up and get into their bedclothes. Macbeth needs to put on his nightgown, because if they are found out to have been still up instead of asleep in their beds, then that could look incriminating. So they really, really need to go and be gone and ready to be found and summoned when someone else discovers the body. Occasion will call them sooner rather than later, so they need to be seen to have been in bed. Lady Macbeth's parting shot is to Macbeth, be not lost so poorly in your thoughts. Macbeth's response is still gloomy. He says, to know my deed, were best to not know myself. To know or acknowledge or understand what he has done, he'd rather no longer know himself. He's very alienated and horrified by what he has done. There's yet more knocking, and Macbeth cries, Wake Duncan with thy knocking. I would thou couldst. Of course, the knocking off stage cannot wake Duncan since Macbeth has murdered him. The pair of murderers depart, and this is the end of the scene, at least on paper. The knocking will continue, and eventually a servant will appear to answer the summons. This will be the porter, one of the weirdest but most memorable characters in our play. We'll have a great time as we start to dissect what on earth he might be talking about in the next episode. For now, I want to wish you a very happy new year if you're listening to the podcast when it's first broadcast, The remainder of Macbeth will take about 50 more episodes, so I'm looking forward to spending the whole of the year ahead in your company. I'm very grateful to have so many people tuning in and engaging with the podcast, sharing books you're enjoying, and of course a very special thank you to those of you who have bought me a coffee over the last few months. I hope you're enjoying the festive season and that you have a most excellent year ahead. Thank you as always for your company, and I'll speak to you next time.